This bubbly rosé is definitely higher acidity, crisp, and very refreshing. Perfect to take to the coast. From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 4 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here is your host, Heidi Moore. Welcome, friends, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wine Crush Podcast. We are on episode five, season four, and we have Alumbra Cellars and Harper Voigt Winery today with us. We love to dive into the stories behind the brand here and really discuss the wines and what to expect with our guests, you know, when you come to the Willamette Valley. For those that are listening and are able to, grab a glass of wine, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. We're going to start with Drew today. He's first on the mic because he's, well, he sat down first. Yes. So, so here we go. When we start this, I'd like to hear the origins. You've been in the wine industry for a very long time. We're not going to age you and, and call you out by any means, but you've been around for a while. And, yes. you know, your origin isn't just you happen to stumble, you know, into the wine country and, you know, become a winemaker. That's just not the way it works. No, it's not how it worked for me, for sure. No, I've been in, I've been in the Wyoming Valley for 23 years. I studied winemaking in college in California. So 28 years in the in the business, including as a student, as an intern. So I had my sights set on Oregon Pinot Noir early on. Knew I wanted to be a winemaker when I was 18, and then knew I wanted to make Oregon Pinot Noir when I was 20. And now I'm 46. So I did I did just date myself. I'm yeah. So. That's, that's okay. We're not gonna. We're not. <laughs> nobody's doing math today. So you know we hear that a lot of times. Why Oregon Pinot Noir? Because there's so many different varietals in the world. You grew up in California, home of Cab, big you know big reds, buttery Chardonnays, whatever it is. What is it about Pinot that sparked your interest and what and you know made you want to come up here well, I was I was participating in student tastings. You know, when I was, I mean, at, at the time, I, you know, students would put on tastings even before we were twenty one. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's true. Oh, and that's uh, yeah, the legal yeah, part that's of it, what right? we did. Sure. And we just, well, I was trying to explore the world of wine and participating in any tasting I could find my way into because I fell in love with the process after working a harvest and and loved the the science behind it and the agricultural aspects of it, and then grew to understand and love wine second in terms of the taste of it. So I was just participating as many tastings as I could and trying to understand the varieties that were around. And it was a specific tasting that changed my life. And it was in 19, would have been in late 94, early 95. And it was of, of Oregon Pinot Noirs from the 91, 92 and 93 vintage. Those tasting notes, actually, they're in my tasting room. There's that, that my tasting note book from that time is open to that page because that tasting is the most effusive I ever wrote about any wines I'd ever tasted. They just captivated me. The subtlety, the, there were some counterintuitive things, you know, light, light colored wines with tremendous intensity, floral notes that I didn't really understand that red wine could have. And I realized this is not a red wine like anything I've ever tried. And I'm sure I'd had Pinots before, but nothing of that caliber. And so that turned into a a fact-finding trip to come up here and visit a few wineries and um, and then a second trip and then a planned move here as soon as I, as soon as I could. And I did in 1998. That's actually pretty cool. You didn't tell me any of that stuff. Mm. So, you know, there's always surprises when we, you know, kind of start doing this. You need to probably make copies of those tasting notes and actually like frame them and put them on the wall. You'd have to be able to read my penmanship, which, which is impossible. So I could, I could show them to you, but you couldn't make it out. Translation next to it. It's just, you know, a scribble art. Yeah. Some of those wineries are still around and a few are ones that, that aren't, aren't around anymore, but it's kind of fun to, to look back. Yeah. 
after you moved here, what was what was the first job? What was the plan? And did the plan actually go as planned? My yes and no. Uh, the first job was I was the assistant winemaker, enologist initially, and then the assistant winemaker at Sylvan Ridge and Hinman Vineyards down in the southern Willamette. I was just on the hunt for any, you know, whatever job I could get to put my feet you know, on the ground. And uh, that's the, the gig I got. And I spent six years there. And then that winery does a lot of southern Oregon wines. And I realized that that's not where my passion was doing the big reds from that's a good chunk of what they do. And that Pinot Noir was really where I for sure wanted to specialize. And so I got the opportunity to join the winemaking team at Domain Serene in 04. And then on to Shea Wine Cellars a few years after that, and then started my own project. So, I mean, I guess if there was a plan, I'm a, I'm a, a motto of mine is there is no plan to some degree, but, but I definitely, it went the way I wanted to. So where's the dream at right now? Well, we're building, so that's, that's cool. That's we're breaking we're breaking ground on a facility in, in, in McMinnville. So that's been something I've been leasing space. Is right now, the majority of what I do is is custom winemaking and wine consultation. So we make wines for various brands in our leased facility of more than a dozen. And then I'm a consulting winemaker for th- four other projects around the, around the state. So getting everything under one roof is going to be really cool. We've been spread out across a few facilities. So that's it. But Har- the Harper Voigt label is... is 1200 cases and isn't going to grow. It's just my personal kind of passion project. And my, my day job for lack of a better term is as a a consulting winemaker. Got it. Everybody has a vision as far as like what their winemaking style is, you know, what they want to make, what they want to see. And with you going through Sylvan and, and the other places that you were, talk to us a little bit about what that vision was, especially coming off those jobs and kind of where it's transformed and where it's going now. As far as the ones I set out to make yes, based on that? absolutely. Well, I mean, it started with, you know, wanting to make a single vineyard Pinot Noir uh, back in 09 when I, when I launched the label and was really focusing on site-specific wines from different parts of the Willamette Valley, including some trying to look for things that are not just gems within established sub-AVAs, but, but some sort of unexplored territory like Antiquum Vineyard down in the southern Willamette that I... I think I'm the first Northern Willamette winery to contract fruit from them in 2009, and, and uh, I've been making a designate from there. So that's where it started. And then uh, Pinot Blanc was something I wanted to explore. I'd been fascinated by the variety and its versatility and, and wanted to play with that. So that's most of what we do, make a little, make a little bit of sparkling wine and Riesling, but single vineyard Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc is what it's all about. There's that million-dollar question, you know, what is it about being a winemaker and please elaborate on this because it, you could sum it up in probably three words, but it may really need a full explanation. But what is it about being a winemaker that is so magical for you, that gets you out of bed every day, that motivates you, that makes you kind of shoot for the sky and then also help others, you know, with their projects as well? I, I mean, I've, not, I've never done anything else, so I guess it's hard. I, I, I never made a conscious choice to switch from something else to this other than after my freshman year in chemical engineering, switching to winemaking as a course of study. So I don't know. The whole thing is just, it's endlessly fascinating to me. It's never gotten boring. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, but it's work I love. And so it's, and I have a lot of, I, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty tenacious. I mean, once I sort of set my, my mind to something, I, I, I'm going to do it and I can't, and I just didn't look back, but, but I really feel like Every time we, you know, we pose questions in terms of what a vineyard site can do or what a winemaking approach can accomplish, and every time we generate an answer to that question, it it begs more questions. So it's, I think you can clearly spend your entire life just delving into the process of understanding what's possible with Pinot Noir and other varieties, but Pinot Noir in this valley, and the questions never end. 
It's something that everybody says that. It, and the, the learning never ends, the questions never end, the wine never dies because it's constantly alive in the bottle. When we're looking at like the differences with like a Pinot Noir from Eola Hills or a Pinot Noir from Dundee or whatever, I mean, what do you see as the differences between like those AVAs and what you're striving and looking for? Because I know with the, the wineries that you work with, the ones that I know of, they're kind of spread out all over the place. They are, yeah. I mean, we, we work within most of the sub-appellations, whether it's sourcing for Harper Void or for clients. I mean, there, I think there are general profiles of the different sub-AVAs, for sure. But there's so much var- variability and variation within each of them that there's a lot of different expressions. So I, I, so I tend to think of each individual site, you know, in, in kind of on its own. Because you know, I work with three or four sites in the Eola Amity Hills, and they're not similar. I mean, they are, but they're not. Same thing in, in Dundee. Um, I was just with one of my clients up on Ribbon Ridge this morning, Eminent Domain, and we were tasting wines from his estate and then from Lichtenwalter, a site down the ridge, which he sources for Drum and I also make estate wines for. They're three quarters of a mile apart and that they might as well be a world apart in their in their profile, even though the soils are largely the same and the elevations are only slightly different. So that really, I find that's fascinating and continues to be. That terroir piece, I mean, it comes up over and over and over again. And I don't know what the true definition of terroir is. I mean, I know what it is and the fact that I can tell you it's, you know, as a stamp of sight and blah, 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 you know, whatever. But when you're looking at terroir and you're looking at kind of pulling the best grapes, the best whatever, I mean, is there really a end-all, beat-all? I mean, are you looking for a specific thing or is it really truly, I mean, one chunk of dirt is exactly different or, or different from the next chunk of dirt that's maybe 50 feet? It. Yeah, it's a sense of personality is kind of the way the way I look at it. The terroir is the in, in the it's the entirety of the soil, the aspect, the elevation, the microclimate. You know, the way the the way the the air flows through that through that vineyard at different times of the day. I mean, it's the it's the full kind of gestalt of the whole thing. It's the it's the personality of the site, and no one site is the same as any other. Like people are different or anything else. So we've had Pinot Blanc in our glass, and we actually opened it yesterday for our Wine Wednesday that was actually Wine Thursday. But I want to talk more about the wine, but I want to finish this glass because I haven't gotten to do that. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit more in depth about what this is, because you told me that this was the flagship or one of the flagships of Harper Voigt, so to speak. Sure. So let's take a break really mm-hmm. quick. We're going to play a little bit of merry-go-round with the glasses and pour something else in there, and we'll come right back and talk wine. Sounds good. Our glasses are all full now, which means we're all happy. And if you guys have ever seen our photos or our lives or whatever, you'll see that there's wine all over this table from everybody. We four, don't, four bottles. Yeah. Well, four bottles for six people. But yeah, 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 I mean, there's been, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 bottles for four or five people. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, we sit around and eat food after we're done here. But we do have a really good time. And thank you so much for bringing wine. Like, you know, that's what a good winemaker does, right? Yeah. So... We started with Pinot Blanc in our glasses. We, I kind of teased the fact that Sammy and I actually tried this yesterday, and it was like, I think we both went, whoa, when we tasted it. We weren't expecting, you know, what was in the glass, and then we argued about what it actually tasted like, what it smelled like, and I don't think we ever kind of came to a consensus about this. So I'm going to have you tell us exactly 
about this wine because you don't see a lot of Pinot Blanc. Sure. Out. I'm you glad see. I made an impression. That's you, good. I'll take you, that. You Absolutely. Did. Sometimes when you hear whoa, you're like, oh, whoa, bad or no, that's whoa, good. good. And no, it was definitely great. a whoa, good. That's good. Oh, either way, if you get a reaction, that's something good. So I, I adore the variety and I make it in a few different styles, all single vineyard wines. This one's pretty different. I mean, yeah, there's not that much Pinot Blanc in the valley. I mean, there's certainly a few hundred acres at least, but it's it's not super widely planted. I don't think it's particularly well understood by a lot of consumers. For the most part, most Pinot Blanc in the Valley is made in a kind of an early bottled, crisp white, often stainless steel fermentation kind of a style and bottled early, released and sort of consumed quickly. And I approach it a little differently. All of my two still Pinot Blancs are both barrel fermented. This one's barrel fermented in neutral oak. It goes through full malolactic fermentation. And then it ages for almost two years, partly in first half in barrel and the other half in of the time in stainless steel. And uh, and so what we're trying to do is create a profile like a, like white burgundy, and like the way Chardonnay is approached in the Valley, but from Pinot Blanc, which is actually, Pinot Blanc is is a substantially older grape than than Chardonnay. One of the Pinots, we don't know which one, is one of the parents of Chardonnay, and Chardonnay is not an old grape. So in Burgundy and in Champagne, there was a time not that long ago where Pinot Blanc was the white grape. And so this is an attempt to treat this ancient grape probably in a way similar to the way it was once treated. Barrel fermentation, aging on lees, things like that. It comes from a single vineyard called Beezy Vineyard in the Eel Amity Hills, which is just above Seven Springs. Seven Springs. Interesting. Now, I want, I want to talk about Pinot Blanc because I probably was guilty of this, but we're not going to totally fully admit it. But this isn't just pressed off Pinot Noir. This is an actual grape. It's its own varietal. Correct. So it's not just the white juice pressed out of the the red, purple, grape, you know, the... Correct. Yes. Yes, that would be like a Pinot Noir Blanc or a white Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. We just want to clear that up to make sure that anybody who does not know that does know. Mm -hmm. Yes. I actually learned last night that there are so many white varietals that I had no idea. I mean, it was just... So this is one of those that was kind of in that list. I'm Mm -hmm. like... I'm like, okay, that makes sense. You know, it makes a little bit more sense than what I did know about. I love the fact you and Elena were talking before we started and you guys were comparing notes and you were talking about the malolactic and the oak barrel. Listening to winemakers talk is just, it's it's like great being a fly on the wall because the way you guys talk to each other is not the way you would technically talk to the consumer and hearing all these great adjectives and what you're doing. So you guys, I think you were talking about this. And so you kind of hinted to how you were treating this, mm-hmm. but you know, I love it. So, you know. We can understand now. You got to define those, you know, terms and we go from there. Absolutely. Other than the Pinot Blanc, what else are you doing? What else are you making? Is it similar styles? Are you doing another white? We make a small amount of old vine Riesling. A number of years ago, I got offered a contract on the the oldest Riesling, in at least in the county, some of the oldest Riesling in the valley up at Marsh Vineyard in the Dundee Hills, so 1970 planting. And got, I've been getting that since 2012. We're going to, I think we're not going to be, I think that vineyard's probably going to be replanted. That section of it will be replanted probably in not too long. So I don't know how much longer we'll be <clears throat> making it, but we make a tiny amount. I get about a ton. That's kind of sad, but it, but yeah. those vines are probably starting to get tired. It's phylloxera. It's, you know, it's, it, the, the vines are own rooted and there's, there's, it's there. It's not widespread yet, but, but I adore Riesling. I, I think everyone in the wine trade, but, you know, restaurant, distributor, Retailer, winemakers all love Riesling, but it can be a tough sell in the marketplace. Not all consumers take it as seriously as I wish they did. So that's the only non-Pinot Blanc-based wine we make. We do a Blanc de Blanc sparkling wine from Pinot Blanc, two different still wines, and then a lid that little bit of Riesling, and that's that's it, and Pinot Noir. Lots of Pinot Noir. I think Riesling, Riesling is one of those things that I think is is 
is very much misrepresented to, to the drinkers because every time I mention it to somebody who's not like a true wine drinker, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't like that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so sweet. Mm-hmm. It's like syrup. Yes. Which... That's really not most of what Riesling is. I think a, I think a German person would bristle at those kind of assertions. I think it's only the United States, only Americans that are really accustomed to that. So much uh, low end sweet wine, I think, got foisted off in blue bottles on us, and you know, over the over the decades, and it created a perception that Riesling is not serious and is necessarily sweet. And although mine isn't bone dry, it's slightly off dry. It's you know, it's made for somebody that understands Riesling and it's, it's a versatile variety that works well with, with food, especially with, you know, a lot of food that has bold flavors and spice and things like that. So, but it is, I, I agree with you. I, when I present it to people, I sometimes get <clears throat> people going, oh, they kind of shake their heads and I say, you need to try this. I just, if you don't like it, it's fine, but it's Riesling. It might not be what you think it is and you can open people's eyes. It's a, I mean, it's a really great point with that because you said off dry. So, I know what that means, but not everybody does because, I mean, it it is. You're kind of, you know, looking at Riesling going, okay, I don't, I think I know what completely dry is and whatever, and I know what sweet is. But when you're talking about off dry, you know, there's a little bit of residual sugar in it. Mm -hmm. And so what else does that technically mean for those of us that are not speaking winemaker language? Well, it's just uh, leaving an amount. I mean, really dryness, especially in something like Riesling is not, best reduced down to just a number if people say a percent or a grams per liter of residual sugar because the amount of acid that's present, you know, is is a part of that perception. So a wine that's that drinks dry, that, that presents like it isn't sweet, sometimes does have a little bit of residual sugar because it's a, it's all, it's all about balancing it out. And so yeah, so the this mine has just a little bit basically, and just to keep the texture full, just to balance against that acidity. You, know, you can't make lemonade without sugar. You can't you know it would just be too sour. And riesling can be rather lean and, and rather if it's bone dry and has no sugar. Perfect. Thank you. That was of course, great. Of yes. Let's touch on the Pinot really quick yep. because we need to figure out where to find you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the Pinot is extremely important in the whole lineup because it is it is Oregon. It is what brought you from California, and it's, it's what really sparked your dream. So what are you doing with the Pinot? Because there's Pinot everywhere. So what makes it different? You know, why why is your Pinot the one that I need to come find? Ah, well, I'm not sure I'm prepared to make that claim, but I, but I would thank you. We make five different single vineyard Pinot Noirs, and, uh, as well as one that's a blend for multiple um, sources, but I just brought one of them sort of arbitrarily. This is our Terrarosa uh, vineyard, which is a Dundee Hills property. I, it's a site I've been leasing for a number of years. So we kind of control this site. We sell some, we sell the majority of the fruit uh, to other wineries and just keep my favorite little piece for me. But it's a, you know, volcanic soil site pretty high up in the Dundee Hills and just one I've been uh, fortunate to work with. And, and it's only about two and a half acres. It's tiny. But yeah, that's the one I happen to bring is from the 2017 vintage. And it's, you know, three clone blend and whole cluster of this and that and boring technical geeky stuff. I mean, I can, I can expand, but it's really, I want to make these wines from single vineyards in Dundee, Ribbon Ridge, Eel Amity and other areas that are really expressive and different. And this site's been a, a joy to work with. I really think that's what makes Pinot magical because it really does express where it was grown. And so many winemakers really kind of let it drive the bus as far as what it's going to taste like, what it's going to express. And you know, this is a beautiful Pinot. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for bringing it and sharing it. Oh, my um, pleasure. I do want everybody to make sure they know where to find you because you do make wine for others, but your tasting room is here in McMinnville. Yeah, we're open by appointment. So you can go to the website. But yes, we have we have a spot right here in town. And downtown. it's Harper Voigt. Harper Voigt, H-A-R-P-E-R-V 
O I T. No G, no H. I would have spelt that wrong. Mm-hmm. So thank you for <laughs> thank you. It's my middle and last name, so I've been having to spell it to people for years. So perfect. And what about social media and websites? Yeah, uh, her, same Harper, thing. Her Harper White wines on Instagram, HarperWhite.com for the website, etc. Yep. Well, Drew, I so appreciate you stopping by. Coming, actually, you're about only two and a half blocks. Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, yep, pretty right. close. That was a good walk. So we'll we'll hang out again. And thank you again for bringing some wine. Absolutely. In, Thanks and, for having me. And coming today. Of course. Thank you, Drew, again with Harper Voigt. It was so great talking to you and having our little chit-chat. We're going to fill our glasses and come right back with Elena with Alumbra Cellars. Attention all foodies, farmers, and grill enthusiasts around the nation. Fellowship of the Grill is looking for you to be a contestant on their six-week tournament-style cook-off to summer, launching May 3rd of 2021. And to be extra safe, this cook-off is going to be done all digital in the comfort of your own home. Not only is the grand prize winner getting a grill by the burn shop, but knives, kitchen, and grill accessories will be gifted to the cook-off itself and in giveaways to the voters on Instagram. How cool is that? Applications close in just a couple of weeks, so light a fire under that booty if you're interested and head to at Fellowship of the Grill on Instagram to follow and learn more. Oh, and one more thing. If you own a farm, restaurant, or craft beverage, our presenting sponsor, Heidi at Country Financial, wants to support you. Go to insurewhatyoulove.com to send a message. Now go fill up that glass and enjoy the show. Cheers, y'all. Glasses are full. Hope you guys took, you know, a little bit of time to fill your own glasses because we're into part two with Elena here with Lumber Sellers. And she has such a great story. I She came in on Wednesday. We've known each other for quite a while, but we've never really actually sat down and talked story, origin, family, all those kind of things. And number one, you're probably one of the hardest working people I've ever met. So kudos to you. And you need a vacation, as we talked about. But your story was so beautiful because it really starts with family and the hard work of your dad and your mom and and his dream, his dream, you know, way back when. So I want you to start with your dad and kind of how this whole vineyard thing started and really kind of how you got drug into it. It definitely started with my dad. So he is from Durango, Mexico, and he came up here to the United States in the late 1970s. And he met my mom in Oregon, who her family had already settled here in the Oregon area. She's Mexican as well. And they decided to stay here to stay close to my mom's family. And he he had a farm in Mexico, and his dream was always to have a farm here in the U.S. So they just worked hard. I That's all I remember as a kid. They worked two jobs, three jobs, worked nights and days, and that's kind of what was instilled to me. Working hard kind of pays off. So... That's what they did. And in 96, they ended up buying a small plot of land out in Dayton, 30 acres. And there is no, my father is not somebody that had a vineyard or anything like that prior. We were just farmers growing up there. We had grass, cattle, sheep, goats, everything, you name it. And it wasn't until later on, after all of his children left the farm, that he decided to plant a vineyard there in 2005. And it was a lot, it was it was a community-based thing. He knew a lot of the vineyard managers, not necessarily like winery owners or anything like that, but he knew the the 
immigrant workers. He knew the vineyard stewards working the land. And one of his friends was a vineyard manager um, that was planting a lot of vineyards in 2005 here in the Willamette Valley. And he worked out a deal with him to help him plant that vineyard. And he planted 10 acres of, 10 and a half acres of Pinot Noir there on the property in 2005. Did he realize exactly how much work that was going to be when he did that? You know, I don't think so. I honestly could say he had a contractor, his friend helping him, you know, as long as my dad learned, you know, the first few years doing it. And his, a few of his friends kind of helped establish and take care of the vineyards that those first few years. But I honestly don't think he did because we've never ever, I, you know, growing up here in, in wine country in the Willamette Valley, I never walked or went to go see any of the vineyards around here. So, or I knew anything about that. So I don't, I really don't think he did, but knowing that, you know, being a hard worker, I think for my dad, literally anything he could have done, he could have planted anything there. And I think he just would have worked it as hard. He always has the work ethic of like, you know, do you make it work? Whatever it is, you do it and you do it to your best of your ability. And that's kind of what I do and what I've done (laughs) as well. I know when you got done with Dayton High School, because you went to Dayton, graduated, and you pretty much ran away from home. Not literally. You went to college. You established a different career. You were nowhere near Oregon when kind of the calling for the vineyard came knocking on your door, and you kind of had to shift, shift directions. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I left, and I was living in Texas working as a nurse when I moved back and started managing the vineyard. So it's completely, I never, I didn't even have like, you know, oh, my father has a vineyard back home, you know. I didn't even have that thought when I was working as a nurse that, oh, one day maybe I'll go back home and start managing it and make wine. (laughs) Like that was not something that was even like, even crossed my mind. So when I moved back here in 2014, yeah, it was, I was still working as a nurse part-time. I still wanted to continue my nursing education. And I was just trying to manage and learn how to take care of a vineyard. That, that was the plan when I moved back. So obviously the nursing got put on hold. <laughs> yeah. And you decided that the vineyard wasn't maybe so bad after all. Right. So where did it take off from there? Because I mean, being a nurse and being in medicine is is also just a very tedious, very hard you know, career job, but you kind of turned it, you know, flip side up and decided that maybe the vineyard was actually the place for you to be. Yeah. I mean, I think growing up in Oregon, I'm a huge person and lover of the outdoors. So I love hiking, camping, all that stuff and just being outside. So a lot of the times, you know, when I worked as a nurse, you did like the seven days on four days off. And I always found myself outside, you know, those four days off going somewhere on an adventure. So being outside and working outside was something that I enjoyed. And it wasn't, working hard because I started working in the vineyard and doing the work pruning and actually being out there. And yeah, it was hard. I remember the first year it took me a whole day to finish pruning one row. When my dad asked me how many rows I did that day, he's like, how many rows did you? I'm like one. He looks at me and like, are, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, you know, it's every day. It's been kind of like that. Just look at what my task is at hand one day at a time. And then Every day I've gotten better. Every year I've gotten better and improved at what I've I've done. And so it really drew me in. The vineyard, I've never experienced, I never did work ever in a vineyard prior to that time. So it just really kind of hooked me and I just got interested in it. And there's something about vineyards, something about farming of vineyards and caring for a vineyard that is unlike farming anything else. 
And I could say that from growing up, we planted all sorts of things on our, on our property and never have I ever felt as attached to a place than taking care of this vineyard. So there's something about the process that, that is pretty magical and amazing. So I know the whole idea of being a winemaker was definitely not on your schedule. And if I kind of understood the conversation right, it was kind of a dragging you kicking and screaming into that piece of it because you were very happy in the vineyard. And you were lucky enough to have some people within the industry kind of take you under your their wing to a certain extent with both the vineyard, buying fruit, whatever. So now you've gone from being a nurse to a vineyard manager and you know, living that day to day, but now you're making wine. So how did that happen? And what's the magical piece of that? Well, the whole process of winemaking was introduced to me by Stephen Carey, the winemaker out at Yamhill Valley Vineyards. He was just very kind and really inspirational to me and my family. And he kind of motivated us to look beyond just growing grapes and especially me. And I, looking back, I, I, I was so young and I didn't really fully appreciate his time that he was giving us. I wish I would have asked him more questions and was more curious with him, but he was definitely the one that kind of sparked that interest, showed me the whole process of winemaking. And then later on, Chris Barnes out at Chris James Cellars. And so I have been very fortunate to have these men that have been willing to teach me the winemaking process. And still, even then, when I was making just like a little bit, I still didn't think, I, I think I told you, I was like, I was just wanting to make a little bit and just go under the radar and just make a little bit of wine and sell and just enough just to, you know, stay afloat during the year. Nothing, nothing big, but it's gotten... I've gotten a lot of sales and it's been something that I didn't think that was going to be as, I guess, as every year we've grown and produced more, more fruit. And that was something that I, that I didn't think we were going to do, but we are. <laughs> I love the story with Stephen because you were in kind of the right place at the right time. You had been selling your fruit on the industry pages and website or whatever. And Stephen had never bought any of your fruit. He had never really had any contact with you. But then all of a sudden you got this random message, voicemail or whatever from him that wanted to buy a ton of fruit. And then it kind of went from there. Yeah, he definitely did not need to come to our place to buy fruit, especially like our site is very different. It's on the Valley floor. It's not like some Grand Cru vineyard or anything, very humble site. And I think that was just timing because I know the first year it was it was pretty hard learning the whole trade of vineyard managing. I had no idea what I was doing. And he just kind of really encouraged me to continue doing what I was doing. And if, I don't think if I would have had that, I probably would end up still continuing my education in nursing and not in vineyard management or winemaking. Because you did completely put the nursing on hold. I did. After years of doing it. And you were working on your master's degree, if I remember right. I wanted to. I wanted to continue. So I applied to the OHSU School of Nursing when I got here. <laughs> and that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we have this beautiful pink wine in our glasses because we, again, played the roulette of the, the wine bottles and the wine glasses you know, during break. I want to come back and talk about the wine. I want to talk about your labels and kind of, you know, the homage to your family and your your history. So let's take a quick break. Everybody fill up their wine glasses and we'll be right back. So again, our glasses are full. 
it's it's actually different this time because we actually started with pink and pink bubbles, which is not normal. And I had to literally like hoard those last night. So those did not get opened and scarfed by somebody else. So the the it's such a beautiful wine. It's very light. It's I get a strawberry summer feel from it. But is that really what it is? Is that what you get? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. I think all my wines have a hint of that strawberry, like fresh, ripe strawberry to it. But higher acidity is definitely what I have in all of my wines from my rosé to my pinots. So this sparkling, this bubbly rosé is definitely higher acidity, crisp and very refreshing. Perfect to take to the coast. That's actually great with summer coming. So make note of that, people. Alumbra has this beautiful pink wine for you to take to the coast. I, I want to talk about your your labels before we get any further into the wine because they really um, are playing in kind of an homage to your culture, your your history, your father, that whole really backstory. Yeah, absolutely. So the, even the name, so the name is in uh, Spanish to shine forth or to shine. So Alumbra, all of my, so my Pinot as well has like mezcla in Spanish. It's blend in Spanish. So I use a lot of Spanish words and it's definitely just so that my family could pronounce it easier. And that was simple enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're beautiful because they do have this, the, most of them have a sun. They remind me of kind of a vintage Varnay, which is, I mean, not that I want to, you know, bring them up by any means because it's, you know, we're not talking about Varnay sunglasses. But that, for whatever reason, that's what it, it reminds me of. It reminds me of Southern Oregon or California coast, surfing, kind of the Mexican culture as well, because you see suns kind of listed and put on a lot of different things. So I loved seeing that on your bottles and it's on all of them. So it's, it's very eye-catching. Definitely. I, so I brought more of like the toned down colored labels, but I do have some that are like the brighter colors. And yeah, so it's definitely, my labels are definitely colorful, something that is not very quite common in the wine label when you see them. So, and it's kind of, it's so like that vintage outdoorsy feel. So the name is definitely come from like my Mexican roots, but then also being an Oregonian, I like to have like really fun, you know, coastal type of, you know, colors as well. So I have like a blend of those two things going on. <laughs> well, they're beautiful. So I just wanted to make sure we touched base a little bit on that because, you know, they're pretty and they need to be mentioned. So besides the pink that we just had, the pink bubbles, I know you have a number of different wines. Not all of them are being sourced from your vineyard or maybe they are. Most of them are, except for my Riesling. So I make one Riesling. I've already made uh, it twice, and I'm going to continue to trying to perfect the art of making Riesling. <laughs> it's been challenging for me, but yeah, so I just have, I make a rosé, a Riesling, and then Pinot. That's like my base wines. But then being a new winemaker, I love to experiment, and I make a couple barrels of like just experimental varietals blending. I made a carbonic Grenache last year that I did, and just like a barrel of that. So that's just really small production that I just share with my club members and see what they think about it. Speaking of club members, you have kind of the coolest tasting, I don't know if you call it a facility, but tasting tent. And it just looks so fun. And that's new or newer, correct? It is. Yeah, it was. It came out of COVID because, so I launched in 2019 selling 70 cases of rosé. And then 2020, I was going to pour at all the different events that were supposed to, wine events that were supposed to happen in 2020, which didn't because of COVID. So that tent was came out of, because I had nowhere to pour and get my name and label out. So we just opened it up and we started pouring from a tasting tent out on our vineyard and everybody loves it and doesn't want to 
see it go away. So we're there. So note to self, for anybody who's listening, if you wish to drink wine in a tent, you probably need to call and contact Elena now because it sounds like it's booking up. You have a lot of reservations on the books. Yeah, it's by appointment only and we fill up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you and I have in common and really I think how I met you originally was with an organization and a group locally called Ivoy. And I want you to speak more of that because you have such an eloquent way of putting things and I'm a little bit more brash and it really deserves a really lovely explanation of, of what that is and, and how you're involved. Yeah, so <clears throat> I got introduced to Aivoy as soon as I launched in August of 2019. Sophia reached out to me and asked me if I would be a part of this nonprofit organization. And I said, absolutely, yes, you know. And I started out in the vineyard. I started, you know, had a real huge connection with the vineyard stewards out in the vineyard. And one of the things that kind of drove me even to start winemaking is to talk about my wines. When I talk about my wines, I definitely start talking about the vineyard. I start talking about the vineyard stewards, what we do out in the vineyard and tie it all together. So um, just highlighting what our vineyard stewards do and valuing them through this organization is the number one reason why I became involved in it. But it's definitely, Aivoy is just, it's a nonprofit organization that provides free education to vineyard stewards here in the Willamette Valley. And it kind of introduces them to just further their education in the wine industry, become wine professionals, and the board members as well are kind of mentors and, you know, kind of assist them in kind of navigating that that new, if they want to pursue any any new careers within the wine industry. So it, it really gives them the opportunities, I mean, with the vineyard stewards to to get an education, to see all facets of the wine industry outside of the vineyard on the winemaking side as well. And so having that in the Valley is a newer organization and it's been just such an inspiration to see what's been created in such a short amount of time, the individuals that started it in their vision and dream and seeing it actually come to fruition has been really a fun process. And I've met some really great people in the, in the midst of it all. Yes, definitely. It's been, I mean, I, for just launching in 2019, I immediately met a great group of people. So I was like introduced to all of you and I was like, Hey, I have found my people here in the wine industry. So it's been, it's been great. And to see, you know, we just had that first graduation of the first cohort last month. And that was, it was just so to see them go through the whole COVID thing and able to, you know, pass that and come through that whole thing last year and be able to come and graduate this year. It, it, I was just so proud of them to be able to overcome that everything that we we had to overcome last year and and get this first group going. And the fact they stuck with it was actually pretty cool. Yes. Cuz <laughs> they could have just said forget it, I'm out. There's just way too many challenges and go back to what they're doing, but that first group truly persevered and pushed through all the adversity and there they were. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the the first group of graduates, so it was pretty cool. So if you want to learn a bit more about IEVO, it's A H I V-O-Y, Oregon.org, and you can learn a little bit more about that. We want to figure out where to find your wine. So we talked about the tent. We talked about all these great wines that you've had on the table, except the Riesling, because that didn't make it to the mix today, but that's okay. I'll forgive. So where do we find you? Where do we Where do we see your wines? Where Where are you, I guess, yeah. is really where it boils down to. Um, well, you definitely shop online uh, on my website. We ship throughout the state. And then I'm at some uncommon places that you would find. You wouldn't think of finding wine. So the place you could buy my wine all the time here in McBenville is at the Mini Super Hidalgo store on 3rd Street. So they have my wines there and then a couple wine shops out in Portland as well. But here in McBenville, that's the one stop. 
So how do you spell the name for the website? And that way, unlike myself, we do not botch the spelling and we say it correctly and everybody can find really where to, to purchase these and email you. I don't know if it's you can shop through the website or they need to contact you directly, but I want to make sure that everybody can find you. Yeah, no, it's we have a shop online. So you could just visit uh, Lumbra Sellers, which is A-L-U-M-B-R-A Sellers, C-E-L-L-R-A-R-S.com. See, it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, LumbraSellers.com. <laughs> well, Elena, I am so glad we finally made this this happened because we've been talking for months. And again, you are the most hardworking, busiest lady that I have chased in a long time trying to get your story out into kind of the world. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you trusting me to tell your story. And we'll hang out and drink wine later. Yeah. Thank you, Heidi, for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you again to Drew with Harper Voigt and Elena with the Lumbra Sellers for joining us and taking the time to come down to downtown McMinnville and join us for the podcast recording. You can also find us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at winecrushpodcast.com and on the web at www.winecrushpodcast.com. And make sure to find us on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Cheers, y'all. Make sure you drink the wine. We want to give a special thanks to all of our partners of Wine Crush Podcast, sponsored by Country Financial, produced and managed by the Daydream Agency, audio engineered by Silent Outburst Productions, our culinary partner, Pura Vida Casina, and to all of our wonderful listeners in Oregon wine country and to those around the world. Hey, thank you so very much. We really appreciate all your support. Thank you.